I think um, something that can make a job fulfilling is it letting you do the things that you're passionate about or allowing you to have the freedom and flexibility to pursue your curiosities or your areas of interest. Um, And also um, financial compensation can be a big part of that as well. Um, For me, being respected and uh, having meaningful work to do. I think being able to work on something tangible that you know you you really helped create whether that's experiences or goods or uh, something along those lines it it doesn't matter as long as you feel like you are contributing to something i think helping people is really important to making your job fulfilling hello and welcome to you me and ennui the show where you the listener and me your host mary kate palanen discuss the challenges that come with life's uncertainty. And that's the ennui. So we are back for another episode of You, Me, and Ennui. And our season's focus, of course, is on relationships. And this episode, we are going to be talking about our relationships with our careers, with work. And especially when we arrive to a big, sometimes scary question, what happens when I want to change careers? So I'm really excited to introduce our next guest. Uh, After I share a little bit of his story, I think you'll be just as excited and intrigued. So our next guest is Chris Lawton. He is a seminarian with the Paulist Fathers, as well as a medical doctor. He received his undergraduate degree in biochemical sciences at Harvard University and his medical degree from Columbia University. During his time in New York, Chris became a parishioner at the Church of St. Paul the Apostle, the Mother Church of the Paulist Fathers, before returning to his hometown of Milwaukee to serve as a palliative care physician. In 2018, born out of reflection on the spiritual care needs of his patients and ongoing reflection on his parish experiences in New York City, he entered seminary for the Catholic priesthood with Paulists. He is currently finishing his fifth year of formation pursuing a master's in divinity from the Catholic University of America, and recently completed a training program in hospital chaplaincy. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Ray Kate. Great to be with you. It's so great to have you. Uh, You know, just reading your story makes me so excited to to really unpack what your journey has been like and what our, our listeners might, you know, be able to glean from it. And we're just really excited to be talking about this idea of, you know, our relationship with work and, you know, sometimes where there might be a surprising spiritual twist. So I would love to start with asking you a little bit more about your story. Uh, I can tell that you love school, by the way. (laughs) Um, But can you tell our audience a little bit about your journey from studying and practicing medicine to becoming a seminarian? Sure. So, uh, yeah, whether I love school or not, there's been a lot of school. (laughs) But, you know, it's funny because like school is both a privilege, right? It's always a privilege to be in school, but it's also like uh, I counted this year is 27th grade. So whatever that means to be a 27th grade, that's the year that it is. I uh, was pretty confident in college that I wanted to be a physician. And when I was in medical school, it took some time to figure out where my home in medicine would be. And during my third year of medical school, I had the opportunity to do a rotation in a newer field of medicine at the time. And less new now, but still relatively new given the landscape of healthcare in general, hospice and palliative medicine. I really was drawn to that work because 
hospice and palliative medicine more broadly focuses on making sure that we're doing everything we can to help patients live as well as possible for as long as possible when faced with serious illness. And so there's a very holistic approach to that work. It's certainly about good science and good physical medicine, but palliative medicine, I think, is a real model for good healthcare in general, and that it really seeks to care for the whole person. Of course, we always want to do that, but palliative medicine as a field is always seeking to attend to emotional and spiritual needs as well. I did a training and fellowship program in palliative medicine where I got to dive more deeply into what it means to journey with patients and families uh, who are dealing with serious illness, many of whom have cancer, advanced organ failure, and other things that make people ask questions about how am I going to live well given an extraordinary setback in my health? So thinking about meeting families and patients and learning their story and helping patients make sometimes very complex decisions and walk through sometimes with a whole network of doctors, a meeting that helps align a patient's deeply held values and goals with the uh, agenda or the hopes of the medical team, or maybe the opportunities and treatments that are available so that we can get everyone on the same page. I found that work also very meaningful, partly because it relies on learning people's stories and uh, developing relationships with folks who are in pretty difficult circumstances over a very short period of time and, and trying to build trust and, and alliance with them. As part of that getting to know folks, there's always conversations about what makes life worth living, what brings about purpose and meaning. So very often I would be with patients and I would, through their stories, be thinking about these questions about meaning making. And as someone that grew up Catholic, that was always very involved as a, as a member of church communities, parish communities, there was a real way that these worlds aligned. And what was happening for me professionally was always a cause for reflection on my own Catholic faith and my experience as a, as a Christian. So with time, I found that the stirrings that were coming up inside of me were, what if I had the opportunity to attend more directly to the spiritual needs of people and maybe folks who are dear, dealing with illness and health related needs, but maybe also with others. I had had such a meaningful experience as a parishioner at St. Paul the Apostle in New York City getting to know the polis, getting to know the community there, getting involved in ministry. And I found that at a certain point, after a few years working as, a, as an attending, I really wanted to dive into that realm of the spiritual and potentially pastoral care, we might say, more directly. And that's what led to the decision to step away from medical practice and enter seminary with the polis. Wow, I mean, I just from that description, it sounds like this journey for you has been really fulfilling and very, very life-giving. But I'm curious, you know, as you felt that stirring to maybe enter into seminary, did you turn to anyone for guidance when you were considering the switch? Did you face any criticism or even, you know, lack of understanding from friends or family members? I did. Uh, I did turn to uh, lots of folks. And actually at the beginning, the first person I told that I was thinking about this were actually three of my college roommates. And I'll tell you why I told huh. them, but I was at, we were at our 10 year college reunion and we were having a really wonderful time. And we were at lunch and I had, had been thinking about this. I'd been working out of training, working as a doctor for a few years. 
and we were at lunch and I, I just had this desire to share this thing that I'd been like you said, stirring. I, Cause you know, it was, it was inside of me, but I, I felt like they would be good people to tell because they know me and they care about me, but in a really great way, they didn't have a lot of stake in the decision. And that's not because mm-hmm. they didn't care what I chose, but sometimes when we make big decisions in our lives, it's, it's hardest to tell the people who ultimately, you know, love us unconditionally and are, will, will come to celebrate that decision. But, you know, if it's maybe a sibling or a, a, a you know, a direct relative in our family, or maybe a, a friend or a coworker with whom we're interacting every day for whom that decision will have a direct impact on their life, that can be a hard person to share with. So actually these friends, and I subsequently told them this, were wonderful people to start with because they knew me, they could support me, but they there was an objectivity with which they could receive it, right? So I told them, and I was grateful that they and a number of other friends didn't do what I thought might happen, which was like, be shocked, like, oh my gosh, like, really? Like, you're going to leave all of the things that you've done, or however they might have perceived that shift. I was surprised a little bit because they said, oh, okay, you know what? we can kind of see that for you. And they had questions Mm -hmm. and things like that, but they were also very affirming more quickly than I anticipated. Um, And there, some of them are Christian, many of them not. Some of them are religious or spiritual people, some of them not. So the more people I told, there was this common denominator of folks being able to see it more easily than I imagined. Because I was thinking about it as this big transition. In many ways it was, but the fact that a number of people sort of affirmed it pretty quickly, helped me feel more affirmed. I was grateful. No one was, to answer the second part of your question, nobody was particularly critical. Uh, certainly people asked questions. Um, when I told my parents that I was really considering applying to seminary, um, the first question that my mother, she's like a strong, protective mother, the first question she asked was, will, will there be health insurance? Like, <laughs> really practical things, right? And she's the mom, so right, like that. And we now laugh about that, but but she was ultimately very, very supportive, just wanted to know it was gonna be okay, right? So it was a gradual process of telling people, but ultimately the affirmation was really nourishing to the decision for me. That's beautiful. I mean, you're actually, uh, what you're saying is really resonating with me. I actually did make my own switch. I work now in media ministry, but I worked in a very corporate public relations job. And I was close with a few coworkers. And I remember when I was thinking about taking this position, they were the ones I went to first. And it's interesting you say they didn't really have a stake in it. My coworkers were like, this seems like a great opportunity for you. I really think you should go for it. So, and it was my parents who were thinking, well, you know, cost of living in New York City is tough. And, you know, how will this work for you? So I'm hearing a lot of uh, your experience resonating with me and I hope maybe resonating with our listeners. So that's great. But I know, well, And I'll just add to that because I no, thanks for sharing that. And I, I don't know if you found this when you shared that information, but one of the things that is definitely true in my own journey is that whenever we take the risk of sharing with people something like, hey, you know, I, I think I might want to make this big switch, or I might want to take this, start this new chapter. The longer I've gone on this journey in seminary, the more I see this not so much as a, a change or a switch, and more as sort of a next chapter and a natural, for me, what was a natural continuation of yeah. things that were already there, right? But whenever we 
tell our own story always invites people into reflecting on their own. So I don't know mm-hmm. if as you made your transition, if people, you found people saying to you, gosh, I've always wondered if I should do X. And that's happened to me so many times. And it's and been such a gift is when people say, you know, I thought about what you shared and mm-hmm. it made me think about this decision that I'm trying to make. I mean, that to me is one of the key reasons we tell our stories, right? Is because we're yeah. always learning and reflecting more deeply on how do we live to our own highest expression of ourselves, right? So I think that is another gift of that time of sharing is you you receive so much from other people too. I, I think I am surrounded uh, socially by a lot of type A folks who are just kind of saying, like their only response was like, cool, that sounds great. Like kind of like this disbelief of like, great for you. Don't know if I would do it, but, right, <laughs> but also right. very, very affirming. So I think there's definitely a range of reactions, but all, all supportive. So that, that I'm lucky for that as well. But I guess, you know, as you talk about these affirmations um, and luckily not so much criticism, but internally, you know, did you find yourself scared to make the switch? And if so, like, was there something you did to overcome that fear or something that you focused on in the broader sense? Yes. I think there were two fears that I could point to uh, right away. One was, well, if I do this, what will it mean if I ultimately decide that it's not a path I want to go down? Mm-hmm. What will it mean for the professional opportunities in healthcare, right? Like, it's wonderful to talk about, oh, like, you know, being on a journey in the next chapter, and I'm going to use those words. But we all know that there's like a practical reality of like, if you leave your job, you no longer have the job and you no longer are, you know, kind of moving through whatever your professional sphere is, you're no longer sort of moving through that sometimes ladder, sometimes winding road that like just practically helps you advance, right? So there was no question that I was a little bit like, oh, I wonder, you know, if I decide not to do this and I tried to come back to full-time medical practice, what would that mean? Will I be behind the eight ball? Will I be able to, you know, get a job again? What will happen? So there was that. But, you know, the other probably deeper fear at the time that I I still rely on and I go back to was this fear of, I guess I would call it, and people write and reflect on this. This is, I'm not the first person to say this, but um, the, the notion of like a deathbed reflection, like what would I think if I didn't try this and I were laying there at the end of my life, thinking about the opportunities that I did or didn't take. And for me, that was like, there was like a fear of like, oh, what will I experience in myself if I look back and I never tried? So that fear actually propelled me forward. And then there was another uh, dance to do of kind of like, you know, when you, one of the ways to overcome the anxiety of a decision, of course, is to get more information. So our vocation director at the time, Father Dotron, who um, was a wonderful uh, Paulist and now friend of mine, he was walking me through many of the decisions that were helping allay some of my fears and anxieties about what will the future look like? What will I do? Where will I live? What if, you know, I have questions along the way, which of course there are. And at a certain point, you know, it was sort of like, I would call that like doing your homework. Like I was just trying to doing my homework to try to make the best decision I could. But at a certain point, 
Father Dot said this wonderful thing where he said, you know, Chris, I don't think I have a whole lot more information that I'm going to be able to give you. I think you're going to decide something and then there will be more you learn, but it probably will only come once you've made just the next decision, which at the time was really just to apply and to be part of our first year program in seminary that we call the novitiate. And that's really the only commitment that's being made, right? Beginning, they're not ready to ordain you a priest. They're not even ready to say that you should be a polis. It's just <laughs> one step in the journey. So that was really, really helpful. And I think also just realizing that you make one decision and then in the future you make another decision. And that sometimes there's a way that in my mind, and I, I've known other folks like this, we get this thing that happens where we think if I make this decision, there's a domino effect of decisions and consequences, more of really effective consequences, whereby my life is like set and I can never make a change again. And sort of like, I'll be stuck. And that's just usually not the case, right? So I think realizing we make one decision, we'll see how it goes. That was very helpful. So taking like a, a different turn in the conversation, uh, and I'm sure it's something that you get asked about quite often. When it comes to the combination of faith and medicine, science, science and faith really, what do you tell people who might not understand how a scientific field like medicine and a spiritual vocation to the priesthood could really ever go together? I found that when I was studying medicine, it always brought me to a deeper sense of awe about when you learn about the healthy and diseased human body, which is a big part of the beginning of medical school, there's just such a profound amount of wonder that one can sit with about how this system works at all. And when you're a first year medical student and you go to the anatomy lab and you experience the just unbelievable intricacy, complexity, and really beauty of the human body. For me, that was like a first entry point into like how faith and medicine are just so beautifully woven together. For me, science and medicine are always a lens into the wonder of God's creation, but without question. Hmm. There's a important you know, question to be asked, well, we could say, well, why does the human body become diseased? And sort of the problem of Suffering is probably beyond the scope of our conversation today, but but I do think it's important to say like just the the incredible intricacy of, of our bodies. And then when you add on the whole development of our emotional, psychological selves, it's just it, it's just a great source of wonder. The other thing that was very true for me is there were so many lessons of medical training that were such obvious points of connection to faith. So I'll just give an example from the field of palliative medicine. One of the things that is certainly true in that work, whether someone is Christian or not, is not so much relevant, but there is a, a phenomenon that we see a lot in folks, especially folks dealing with serious illness, where when folks face something that is unexpected, extremely difficult, there often is this experience of a necessary dying to something in our lives. It might be a dying to 
a hope that we had about what the future was going to look like. It might be uh, a dying to a certain dimension of our personality that wasn't working very well for us or particularly adaptive to us. It might be confronting just the reality of our own mortality, that we are not people that live forever. There is an experience that comes up in healthcare again and again in small and big ways of dying to something. But then it is just so extraordinary when you watch folks, and I could not speak to this having gone through nearly what many patients and families I've worked with have gone through, of rising to something else, of living into a different experience, of living into a new thing that you're hoping for, of um, experiencing relationships among family and loved ones in a new way, in and through whatever the medical condition is, a sort of like rebirth of something that for many people, they would say, wasn't something they would have ever imagined. It wasn't the way they thought their life would look. It wasn't necessarily the kinds of interactions they thought they'd be having because of whatever circumstances had to change because of the illness. But something new was born out of this great difficulty, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this um, Father Richard Rohr, Franciscan and a Catholic priest and just amazing, amazing um, source of spiritual wisdom, calls it the parabola of life, recognizing this pattern, which is often true, that there's often a dying before a rising. And you just don't have to sit with folks who are facing serious illness that long to see that pattern and then to, as a Christian and a Catholic, recognize that's like the central pattern on which we build our faith, right? And so on a very practical level, there's all these incredible ways that we could say, well, look at all that you know God gives us in science and discovery and all of these things. But then there's also this very, very powerful level on which these central themes of living, that notion that there's always a going down before a coming up, a dying and a rising, it, it perpetuates in our lives. And that's the very message of Jesus, right? We would say that pattern and the connection there was also very, very meaningful to see. So I think it's almost like for me looking at deep truths from a slightly different chair in the room mm. is how I would say it. Love that. So, you know, if I can speak a little more personally, just for a moment, you know, a lot of job transitions or m many times, or at least in my experience, um, my job transition came from feeling like something was uh, not like missing in this like deep and existential way. But my previous position, I was working at one of the top PR agencies in the country. And I had just really hustled my life away to get my next promotion to where I wanted to be. And I remember when I got there, I had what, you know, what Father James Martin, great Jesuit, would call this mountaintop moment where you get to the top and you think, ooh, is that all there is? <laughs> and that's what really led to me trying to figure out, okay, if this isn't it, what's next? And it really took another, like, I would say six to nine months to a year for it to really appear. But I really was sitting with that notion of, you know, something's missing. So what advice do you think you might have for someone who feels like something is missing in their life? Or even if they're just looking for a deeper spiritual connection, you know, they love what they do, but they feel like, you know, their career can't be it, so to speak. Oh, I just think that is the question. Isn't that, I mean, that you, what you just wrote by that is so the question, which is right. Like, 
it's for so many of us, I so identify with what you just described and that trajectory of working towards that mount, I love that, the mountaintop experience, uh, or at least the mountaintop as the world defines it, right? Right, right. And then getting to those moments and saying, oh, okay, that was good, maybe for me, that was good, but then what else? Like, the, like I thought, maybe I thought, I don't want to say what you thought, Mary Kay, but, but when I've had moments similar to that, then you're like, wait, I guess I thought there might be something else like another feeling right 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 and i don't say that as a knock on the corporate world because like what really highlighted it for me was that i saw my colleagues who were just absolutely on fire for what they did and i was like man i do not feel that way yeah and is this worth all the work if i don't feel as fulfilled in it as my colleagues do so i like for anyone listening at home i'm not knocking the corporate world it's just you know my experience with it yeah right right and and for it's so important right to reflect with other people about like well what is that moment like for you like i'll just say and for those of us that have gone through medical training it's that moment of graduating medical school or maybe residency or getting your first job that you've been working so hard for and then experiencing it and i will just say i share that i did not transition from where i was to where i am out of dissatisfaction mm -hmm. i i did what i did because I was so grateful for where I was. It was deeply meaningful and it left me wondering about a new chapter, right? So mm -hmm. again, like it's not, for me, it's not like a, you know, then and now and before and after or like, it's actually a continuation, but I did, I would say my mountaintop experience was getting to that place. It's like, okay, now I'm doing the thing. I'm, this is the job. And then I was still wondering, I would say I was still searching and I think there's two ways that I would respond to that. Like, what do you do when you're at the mountaintop looking for more? One is that in a very real way, there may be another place that is a even more authentic expression of your gifts in that moment, right? And I think for me, that was an important reason to make that transition. But I think in another way, one of the lessons that I'm having to learn in seminary, which as like, in case it is not clear, I'll just say is by no means perfect or like an unending mountaintop. It is far from that, right? And if you said, well, let's talk about some of the challenging things, I could tell you, you know, many of them, right? But it is a very life-giving place where I very much feel God. We, Paulus would say, feel the Holy Spirit doing something, right? In <laughs> me, around me, working on me, that's good. But what I think is also true is that at some point or another, we have to confront this reality that as spiritual beings, I would call it God. I would call it the experience of, you know, Jesus Christ, God's son. But, you know, maybe there are people out there listening who would not use the same paradigm, but they are thinking about something beyond myself, something, some guiding force, something that really is moving me and the universe, and it calls me beyond myself, right? You know, again, you know, I'm going to come at this from a particular lens, it's from my own faith, and I realize that we may have people in very, you know, different places on that on that journey or different experiences of a spiritual practice. But what is definitely true for me, and I wonder if it's true for others, and is that one of the tasks I think of our spiritual lives is confronting the fact that that restlessness will never totally be satisfied. Right. So coming into seminary for me is a more comfortable place to sit with the reality that I'll never be totally satisfied. 
I think one of the great challenges of the world we live in, especially, I don't know, corporate America, but I know this is true in medical training is like, there's this way that without anyone intending bad, you keep running and going and going. And the implicit conclusion is, you know, when you get to the end of this, it's going to be so great. And I think that, you know, many of us get to that point. It's like, it is, you know, I think healthcare is just in many forms, right? Whether you're a doctor, nurse, or a PA, or an NP, or, or you know, medical assistant, so many ways, amazing, amazing, meaningful work. But to look to any one thing, one job, that it's going to fulfill all of my deepest desires and needs and be able to use my gifts in the perfect way. In other words, sustain the mountaintop, I would say, it's something we get told we should expect, but then lets us down when we don't. And I think learning to live in a world where we're doing the best we can to make meaning and experience something far beyond ourselves, but knowing that in this life, that is so unlikely to be fully satisfied. We, like Christians would say, that is not going to be satisfied in this lifetime and getting comfortable with the fact that we're gonna just be on the journey. My favorite song, favorite song of all songs, is uh, U2's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Because hmm. I think it just speaks so beautifully to this reality that I haven't found it. I mean, I, I've, I've had mountaintop experiences, so I think I'm doing, I'm just trying to do the best I can to move towards it, but I haven't found it. And quite honestly, Mary Kate, I'm just trying to get more comfortable with I'm never going to be fully satisfied in this life, but I will love the mountaintops when they come. I love that. It's, it's interesting as you're describing what it's like in the healthcare environment. And you said, I don't know what it's like in the corporate world. I do remember we used to say to ourselves, if we ever got just too overwhelmed or just too stressed out about something, someone would turn to you and say, remember, it's PR, not the ER. And that was just a good reminder that, you know, Unfortunately, we aren't changing. Uh, you're not. We're not saving lives. But sometimes we were operating as though you know this was going to change the world. I think it's it's a different uh, a different wheel, a different system. But you know, I do love what you're saying about about you know getting comfortable with always being restless. I think that leads well into this question of coming to today. You know, what does your professional and spiritual fulfillment feel like? You know, maybe fulfillment isn't the right word from what we've just described, but, you know, looking at it today, what is this now combination of professional and spiritual life? How does that feel for you? How would you describe it? Yeah. So, uh, in this moment, I will say there are like maybe ultimate fulfillment. It's like one thing, right. But I will say like, there are many, I'm grateful to say there are many fulfilling moments. And then, you know, sort of you talk about the professional, the spiritual, uh, and there's many challenging ones. Um, but I, I, so maybe I can speak to, to both parts of that. I mean, you know, from a, from a professional standpoint, a lot of, a lot of seminaries learning about what the day-to-day -day life and work of a minister is. And so I will say like seminary does a great job of dispelling the notion that working as a minister or pastoral care person, whatever your job is, and we're always thinking about what does it look like for a priest, but you know, we could think about a lot of people who do spiritual care, like other fields, right? Like you don't spend all day in like the deeply meaningful work that was the reason you went into it, right? I'm definitely learning that that's a big thing. And I think that priests and folks who work in spiritual care, like everyone else, 
work towards a thing that they may not necessarily spend the majority of the day doing, right? And there's, you know, administrative mm -hmm. stuff and, you know, things you have to do and other obligations, right? So there's that part. But I will say, like, what is meaningful to me often are, like, these little moments. Like, last year I was working at our parish in Chicago, and, like, on Thursdays I would go and I would teach sixth grade religion. And I haven't worked a lot with kids. I, we used to joke with our, our school teachers there, like, my whole work is with older adults, right? And that's, like, very comfortable with older adults, like love hearing stories and working with people who lived a lot of their lives. So working with kids was a new adventure, but there were so many moments of joy and laughter. And here we are trying to work through like questions of faith and, and understanding our religion, all that. But there was so much laughter and there was so much spontaneity that I've never experienced in my work before. And that was like so meaningful. That was very fulfilling for me. This year I'm back at school and sometimes, you know, being a Paulist, you know, we come at this question of being Catholic with this lens of who is not with us, who might feel God bringing them into the fold, but not quite know how to get there. Who hasn't felt welcome? Who's on the fringes and, you know, needs an invitation or needs someone to stand up and say this community of people, I'm going to be with them and, and just affirm that we're here together and we're going to be counted, right? Like the polis are looking at the margins of our church and, and of our society and saying, you know, who isn't here and, and are there ways that we can serve them being here? And I sometimes when that mission is expressed by one of my brothers in class, there are these amazing moments sometimes where like afterwards, maybe not in class, but like someone will come up and say, you know, I really wondered about that question or I, I've, I've felt that too, but I didn't know if I could say that. And, and I, I believe so much that, you know, Pope Francis is sending a message of we're here to journey with each other on this business of being spiritual creatures. And, you know, in our, in our world of Catholicism, journeying together more closely and walking with people in the messiness of life. And there are times here in our Catholic land and seminary, and we study with people of all different um, religious communities and, and geographic backgrounds in the church where you feel people excited about that notion of like, what if we aren't afraid to get involved in the messiness of life and ask hard questions and, and lean with, in with love first and not with, you know, like hitting people over the head with doctrines. So there's these moments where you feel people like, oh yeah, I can really get on board for that. That's very affirming, you know, and, and then on a spiritual level, I mean, I feel like what's so fulfilling is when you realize that, you know, that, again, I would say call it the Holy Spirit is, is teaching you something. I mean, right now I'm being taught that, you know, it's more about waiting than, uh, and receiving uh, than achieving, right? We talked so much about these professional worlds where it's like success and achieve. And a lot of our world here is about, you know, letting things happen and being open and ready when they do and, and not being so scheduled and planned that you miss the spontaneous moments that God has. Um, sometimes it's about checking my ego at the door. Um, that's a big, that's a big part of it right now too. And it's and it's really fulfilling on a spiritual level to feel like the mission of our community is aligned with what uh, I experience in family and friends and loved ones and colleagues is needed in, in those relationships. So I, I feel that in a very powerful way that, that I believe in this work, the mission of our community, as it's borne out in the most uh, meaningful relationships in my life.
That's beautiful. Well, you know, we're almost nearing the end of our time. So I feel like this question is uh, appropriate in the sense that there might be some people who are believing in this idea of like the sunk cost fallacy, or maybe that it's too late to change their career. I've, I've come this far. What am I giving up? What would you say to someone who feels like maybe it's quote unquote, too late to make a change? That's, that's a great question. I, you know, the first thing I think about is that it is a privilege to be able to make a change. You know, I think there's just, again, it's really wonderful to talk with you. And I love talking about this journey and going from one field to a new one of parallels, but also how they are distinct and all of that. But what's definitely true is that it is a privilege to choose different kinds of work that is that is meaningful to you. And certainly to have one and then to choose another one. I mean, mm-hmm. there are just so many people that would not have that opportunity, right? So like, I just think there's first holding up that like, you know, not everyone does. And 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 some people that, that might, you know, just, I also wanna be practical. Like I realized like, let's say, you know, if I had been a physician, parent, you know, married things there, or just practically speaking, many people, financial reasons, right? Right. Things just may not have been possible. So I think on the one hand, you know, if somebody said, well, it's too late. And I I worry it's because these practical realities of my life, like one wouldn't allow me to do anything and everything. Like, you know, we may end up saying this, that is true. Although I also wonder what, if one particular dream isn't true, like who are my close confidants with whom I could be so vulnerable as to say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this other thing, or maybe I'm not satisfied with the thing that I'm doing. And I really need to be honest enough about that to work through what a different reality might look like. I did not experience dissatisfaction. I experienced wonder at a new thing, but for many people too late and wondering about a new path comes from like, I, I want to get out of what I'm doing. And I think having trusted people with whom you can get real about that, who can work through maybe some practical things like, okay, it might not look like going back to nursing school, but if working with people and caring for physical and emotional needs is meaningful, like what could that look like for you, right? Like that's, so that's one dimension. For people that might actually make a big change, I would do anything I could to instill um, some of the very things we talked about at the beginning that like we can convince ourselves that it's too late, it's too much, that it's that things are going to be so set in stone that I when I make a decision that they'll be unfixable or unmodifiable in the future. And I think the first thing is to start telling that story. Start just talking with people you love, people you trust about those fears. And I will just say that far from seeing too late as a negative, some of my most trusted friends and mentors, both in medicine and now in ministry are people that themselves and others said it was too late. My best, best friend in medical school was 41 when we started medical school. So she was almost 20 years older than me. And she was so beloved as a medical student, later as a psychiatrist, because she brought so much to the experience of caring for patients that we just, those of us who came right out of college never could have brought because she had so much experience, so much perspective from a whole other world that she came from, right? 
the same in ministry. I have the privilege of being with some guys who, like me, came to this, uh, like I came to healthcare right out of college. I also am inspired every day by guys who came to this work from another field, from another part of their journey, from another personal or professional chapter of their lives. And it is just always true that those experiences enrich the next chapter. So in some ways, it's yes, we have to be pragmatic. In other ways, it's do we realize that this may not be too late, it may just be the right time. And that that journey to that moment will all inform and in some ways enhance wherever we're leaning next. So it's too late might not be the right way to phrase it. I love that. <laughs> but that's how we, I mean, I thought about the same thing. I yeah. still work, you know, I still, you know, that's for it. but I mean, that's, that is, that's how yeah. we think of it. Right. So that yeah. I get that. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us and telling us about your story. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know our listeners will too. Before I let you go, there is one question that we're asking all of our guests, um, and it has to do with the name of our podcast, You, Me, and Ennui. So Ennui being this sense of listlessness or blahs, we're trying to help anyone who's feeling like they're at a big point in their life get unstuck and uh, maybe take those first steps. So. Just curious to know if there's anything that's giving you a sense of ennui right now. And, and if so, how do you break out of it? Oh, yes. Yes, I think, uh, you know, we were just talking about like how, like I come into this world of ministry and I'm studying theology and I'll be honest, there are days like in everything that are just feel like, oh, mundane, you know, doing the thing. It's like, a, it does feel like, while I love what we're working towards here and the the goal and the mission, some days are just like, kind of like, okay, like we're kind of working through it, chugging along and may not feel as inspiring. So for me, one of the things I am doing, it's kind of even, I would say it's only in the last couple of years, when I get into that space, I'm trying to lean into like a new author. And I'm finding certain folks have like been really, really meaningful to get me unstuck when things are feeling kind of blah. One, can I give, can I just throw Yes. One? Oh, I was just going to ask you for examples. <laughs> one person and by extension through her many people if you or anyone hasn't currently heard of and listened to krista tippett's on being um oh i know, love i mean she's my like yeah I ideal. Just, <laughs> she and the guests that she has on being on space being which is which is she is always looking at through many many different spiritual writers thinkers people of all different religious and spiritual practice you know, what are the, you know, the, the deep truths of our lives and how do we sit with them and work through them? She has helped me get unstuck so many times because something she says or someone she interviews or just the way she frames a conversation is just so what I need to hear at that moment. So I, I will just say she's one person that gets me, that gets me unstuck right now. Yeah, Krista Tippett is one of my heroes. So you're really speaking directly to me. I remember I listened to her interview with the Irish poet and uh, mediator, Padre Gotuma. I was never really that into poetry and it completely changed the way that I look at poetry. Oh my so, God. Uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't agree. I like, I have had the same experience. I'm not, a, I'm usually a poetry person and I have a couple of his poems saved as notes in my phone. There's one of them in particular that I go to when I, my prayer life is stuck and I just feel like, God, where are we at? You know, I, I go back to his words like 
more than I can tell you. We'll definitely leave some more information about those then in the show notes yes. since oh we're, we're fangirling about him right oh, now. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. Uh, where can people find out more about what you're working on right now? Uh, can we point them in the direction of anything so they could learn more about you? Oh my gosh. Well, I would love to direct them to, um, if you would be interested to follow not just what I'm doing, but what our community here of men who are, uh, we call information in seminary with Apollos on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can find us at Paulist Seminarians or at Paulist Seminarians, P-A-U-L-I-S-T, and has all the content. We try to put out um, video and, and other uh, social media content there, and then um, information about all, uh, my, briefly about my own story and the guys that I study with is all available on on our website, which is theapolist.com. Great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much, Medicate. Thanks again for listening to You, Me, and Ennui. As always, I hope the conversation today offered a bit of insight into whatever you're facing and know that there are at least one or two more people here in podcast land who can relate because that's what we're trying to do. Build a community. Looking for some deeper reflection on today's conversation? Be sure to listen to our bonus meditation after this for a few questions on how this topic might apply to your life. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to like, review, and subscribe. You can also join the conversation at our Discord server linked in the show notes. I'm your host, Mary-Kate Polanin, and the one thing that's for certain is that I'll be with you next time on You, Me, and On We.